0: Welcome to the Experience Focused Leaders podcast. My name is Alex Shevalenko. I'm CEO and founder of Relay2, and we are on the mission, Bose was the podcast and with Relay2, to bring the most important ideas to life. And how do we do that? We do that through amazing, immersive, engaging experiences that move your organization forward, move your customers forward, and move us as a society forward. So if you love ideas, if you love bringing these ideas to life, stick around. Also, at the end of the podcast, we'll reveal how you could potentially be a guest speaker on the podcast as well. Let's get started. Welcome, friends, to a very special episode of Experience-Focused Leaders. I have Thomas Smale, who is the founder and CEO of FE International. Uh, FE is a tech-focused M&A advisory firm that specializes in one to $100 million exit sector. His team closed over 1,500 deals with a combined value of over $50 billion throughout their careers, and they worked with investors and founders all over the globe. Um, their experience goes back to early 2000s and they specialize in businesses in SaaS e-commerce and uh, kind of digital media content categories. So Thomas, welcome to the pod. Excited to hear your story. Hey Alex, thanks so much for inviting me on. Great. Well, Thomas, you know, obviously um, many folks myself i would say don't start was a business uh the business was an idea to sell it uh immediately right we want to you know we want to build a legacy but some businesses have constraints right they operate in certain markets uh things happen to the owners uh that you know their financial situation changes and they need to exit the business describe to me what's kind of the like for small business owners what are the biggest reasons that they're choosing to engage with you and to pursue the m and uh, exit strategy for their business, or maybe you're doing recapitalizations in other areas. And just for your context for everybody, uh, Thomas um, uh, and I met through a shared customer. He was, you know, has raving reviews from that shared customer. And so, you know, I'm actually here like super fired up to learn from Thomas uh, because while we are building a business for hundred years, I think actually a lot of our customers um, are built, you know, have a different focus. And we love that and respect that. And we want to make sure that they have access to ideas from Thomas. So Thomas, over to you on kind of how this could help entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing to consider is that every single person has to exit their business at some stage. That does right. not necessarily mean the business cannot continue. But as an individual, you at some stage will exit. the the business unless unless we drink
0: the potion of infinite life is that is that
1: like the well yeah unless we're assuming that that could happen um which means that everyone should have some form of exit strategy even if it's not right now and also a lot of people have the plan never to sell which is fine And, and often the best businesses are ones where the owner has not been doing things to get it ready they've just been running it as they want to run it for 100 years that period um, might be but often when people do decide to sell it's because there's been a change in personal circumstances financial circumstances opportunity but it might be here i've actually got a better idea i have this new business which is doing and it's growing more than I thought so i'm going to sell my current business um it's usually, so it's usually one of those three things a lot of people we work with And I always believe that every entrepreneur should have a specific financial exit goal in mind. And if it's your first business, it makes sense to sell when you hit that level. And hopefully that level is uh, what I would describe as financial freedom, or ideally the level above that would be generational wealth. So you and your kids, if you have kids and your kids' kids never have to work again if they don't want to would be generational i think financial freedom is probably a bit more simple than that it's do you want to buy a buy a house do you have some debt to pay off maybe it's an existing mortgage maybe it's college loans or credit cards or whatever it might be And being in a position where you and your spouse or your family if you're married and have kids also don't have to work again and just have that baseline level of financial security and then with your next business and Every entrepreneur can build a a new business. There's not, I've never met anyone who has built a successful business who's only ever been able to do it once. Then, once you sell your first business, you've then created a kind of financial platform where you can go do it again. I think a lot of people run businesses for too long and never, I'm I'm all for delayed gratification. So, not taking every cent out of business as you go along. But, I think it's important to get out get some cash out when you can and often an exit is the best way to do it. So usually the people we work to, just very long answer to your short question, but the short answer is people sell when they want to get some cash out of the, the business and often an exit is the best way to, to do that. And there can be many cash lists for that. It might be they've been approached by a buyer, it might be family member is sick, um, it might be they have a new opportunity. There's there's lots of different things that can cause that, but that's ultimately why people decide to sell.
0: Well, and you know we know the SaaS ecosystem really well, and we support digital content folks as well. So obviously, in the world that we live in right now, at the end of 2023, there's a little bit of a bubble bursting effect in in some of the. Uh, kind of inflated valuations and the sort of the VC game that is the more popularly uh, covered game in the press. Um, So tell us, you know, how is that impacting your business? You've been like growing tremendously and the the deal volume that you've been doing uh, was in FE International. So what are you seeing now that sort of the trends and, you know, in uh, your lovely report that you produce uh, that's emerging? that's changing the dynamics and making more businesses think about the exits or not think about the exits in this new environment?
1: Yeah, so I think, again, the caveat is where a lot of the slowdown's been, is deals in, in the, say, 100 million to multi-billion dollar range. If you have a small business and it's profitable or has a path to profitability, there's always been demand for acquiring those companies, and that has not gone away. In the US alone, there's around $4 trillion in dry powder with private equity firms right now. And while that's not necessarily all going into tech m that's $4 trillion that needs to be deployed, either investing into businesses or um, acquiring businesses outright. So your $10 million business you've built or your $50 million business you built does not make a scratch on that that total amount so context big deals may have slowed down smaller transactions really have not assuming you built a good business where m&a has gone away at the lower level is companies that previously might have been losing money every month and a speculative acquirer might have come in maybe they were strategic or maybe they were borrowing money very cheaply and could make the the deal work so those deals aren't happening anymore so if you're burning cash, it's very difficult to sell at the moment. Because basically um,
0: there the buyers are themselves under pressure to deliver profitability. They may not have uh as many resources right now as the you know the funding environment has constrained.
1: So well, and also just interest rates in most yeah. countries in the world are now higher. So it's more yeah. expensive to borrow money if you're using debt to buy yeah. a business, which means that your required returns to higher. If you had te- million dollars in cash a couple of years ago in the us and you wanted to just keep it in say t-bills like treasury bonds you would your yield would essentially be nothing if you do that right now so what november 2023 your yield is somewhere around 5.5 percent and you don't have to do anything so at the very least you need to be able to beat that kind of threshold rate as
0: much yeah Mm.
1: yeah so why would you buy a business for say 50 times multiple if the return isn't there so a lot of a lot of people literally look at it that simply i i call it i describe it as spreadsheet spreadsheet negotiation a lot of people just look at the numbers obviously there's more to it than that if you can quadruple a business it's irrelevant what you paid for it because you're going to grow it and it doesn't really matter so i'm of the belief so strategic that is still
0: strategic <laughs> Strate- strategic is still strategic but the opportunistic math is becoming much harder
1: Uh, and particularly the financial map is becoming a lot harder if you have a business that's not that profitable if you're profitable and making money those deals are still happening exactly the same as they were two years ago it's been essentially no change in demand for those nor have we seen any slowdown at all buyers are just getting a little bit more disciplined but buyers are also getting a little bit more creative which means some of the billion dollar private equity fund if we turned up with a 50 million dollar deal and put it in front of them two years ago they would have laughed us out of the room and said no we're not looking at this it's too small but now a lot of these funds will be looking at at the moment we have a, a deal we're representing around 125 million valuation they'll happily look at a deal at that level now years gone by they wouldn't they'd say oh, it's too small we have to be deploying at least 250 million per transaction or whatever that that might be so a lot of these funds are coming down which means if you have a relatively small business, say below a hundred million valuation, there's a lot of demand out there for companies like yours.
0: Got it. So this is really helpful. Uh, You know, my, my take as an entrepreneur and maybe you could help me interpret this is that, uh, you know, I get, get I'm thinking like four types of inbounds, uh, kind of outbound directed to me spam, you know, so one is like people want to give me leads, uh, of competitive, you know, competitive users. There's like offshore development shops that are, they're going to me, uh, there are lead gen services. And the fourth one is PE shops that look at our growth on some sort of, whether it's G2 and other kind of parameters that they're identifying and they're kind of reaching out aggressively, trying to connect to the entrepreneurs. So, um, you know, what's your take on kind of what should entrepreneurs do when they get that sort of inbound interest? And, you know, some of it could be, you know, maybe we're a little bit on the more venture backed kind of, but still kind of scrappy project, you know, kind of version of that. So it's attractive to PE shop. Some businesses could be smaller. They may get brokers coming in, you know, guide an entrepreneur to what to do, right? Do you invest your time, in building these relationships, taking an analyst or associate or VP meeting, you ignore it and wait until you engage. They engage you uh, in, you know, in around the tr- time of a transaction uh, coming closer. You know, what what have you seen the most successful entrepreneurs do?
1: Was that level of inbound
0: interest from PE
1: shops? I think overall, it always makes sense to have a conversation with someone who's credible. I mean, as an entrepreneur, I, I probably get. 500 cold emails a day, literally emails, LinkedIn, all sorts of different mediums of reaching calls, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, it does not necessarily mean reply to all 500, but credible approaches are usually quite obvious when they're credible. So, maybe of the 500 emails I get a day, I would say it always amazes me, having been an entrepreneur for kind of 15 years now, how bad outreach is. 99% of outreach is terrible. So, you can tell very quickly what's good outreach, particularly when it, and that same thing applies to investors or potential acquirers of your business. If it's like, hey, Alex, I'm John, I'm an associate at uh, X Capital, and we're looking to buy SaaS businesses, are you interested in a conversation? That's probably going to be a waste of time. If it's, hey, Alex, I'm, I'm John at X Capital. I've been following your Relay Two journey for a while. I really like how you've built the product out and the integrations you have with X Y Z. We recently closed a deal in the space with a company that specializes in X Y Z. Um, typically, the average deal size is kind of five to ten million dollars, and we're looking for companies that generate at least a million dollars in ARR. Are you interested in the conversation? if you meet that criteria, then that probably makes sense to have a conversation. Um, Just replying to anyone who cold emails in, is probably going to be a waste of time. Um, It's always worth having those conversations. So generally speaking, private equity firms that are cold emailing like that are not going to be the best buyer for your business. You need to run a competitive process and get multiple offers on the table. I think where you do hear about some success there is if you have a true strategic acquirer, and they come along and acquire you, that might make sense. So I don't know your business that well, but that might be Darmesh at HubSpot emails you and says, hey, Alex, love what you're doing with Relay 2. This would be a great fit for the, the HubSpot platform. I think I use this to find good use of it. Are you interested in a conversation about acquisition? Here's some recent deals we did in the space. You've probably heard of them. Um, and then cite some of the deals they've done. That kind of approach would make sense and you should have that conversation. Strategic buyers often have the ability to pay more. That said, 99.9% of entrepreneurs will never be lucky enough to sell their business to someone who cold emails them. So if you are ever thinking about selling, you do actually probably need to hire an M&A firm to run a process for you and reach out to hundreds of thousands of buyers and get multiple convers- conversations on the table. Uh, and if you do get lucky and you get that true inbound interest which is willing to pay more than market value for your business i am very much unashamedly a, a capitalist i always think you should take money and go build something else there's not a there's no shame in that and there's no limit to g- good ideas out there and also what i think a lot of people don't think about when they say they're not going to sell second time round, it's a lot easier because you already have a bit of reputation if you're mm-hmm. doing some sort of cold email email or contact, you, you're you more credible. Um, if you want to build your business by going to speak at conferences, almost any conference will have you on stage if you've exited your business for eight or nine figures. Um, you, If you want to get investment, it's much, much easier if you've done it before. Um, it's just so many things that are easier if you've done it before. And just that financial element, if you do not have the stress of... How do I pay my mortgage? How do I pay my rent? How do I, yeah, kind of put food on the table for my kids? Then I think that makes decision making easier as well. So sometimes taking a deal makes sense if a good one comes along. So it's always worth having the conversation. But I think as a business owner, I think it's your kind of fiduciary responsibility to your company to have those conversations. But at the same time, it's also your responsibility to run the business. So you don't want to. If you're not planning on selling, you don't want to get distracted spending 25 hours a week speaking to quantity like random kids sat in a New York office calling companies trying to buy them. Yeah. Well, actually, so let's
0: help let's help entrepreneurs who are listening to this and folks in those entrepreneurial teams think about, you know, what can they do to increase their optionality? Because obviously, like what, you know. Business School 101 will teach you is that if you don't have to sell your business, it's much easier to have a, you know, a lot of attractive options that it available for sale, right? If the business is doing well, Um, if you have uh, strategics, like you mentioned, that may uh, increase your multiples from, you know, compared to what financial uh, acquirers may be interested in because of the potential synergies of the two businesses. And so... Guide us a little bit about what do you see as the best entrepreneurs and the best entrepreneurial teams that are doing to create maximum optionality, and especially in this environment where venture funding may not be as easily available, especially at these later stages. And, um, you know, there's there's there seems to be a lot more premium on obviously profitability and tangibility versus, hey, you know, I have a lot of potential, you know, I have a big vision. I haven't delivered on it yet, but believe me, I will write type of stories, which you know we're, we've been kind of inundated with a little bit in the ecosystem.
1: Yeah, maybe this sounds overly simplistic, but ultimately, you just need to focus on building a good business. I think the worst thing you can do is come watch me speak at a conference on stage talking about valuation drivers, which I'll often talk about and say, oh, Thomas said, here are five things to increase the value of my business. I'm going to go spend all my time. Just working on these specific uh, metrics but every business is different yes there are certainly things that i can present and we have from all our data that says these specific things will make your business worth more that doesn't necessarily apply to every business and they are not necessarily relevant to what you're doing or what your skill set is so if you have the option of the one of the things i talk about is reducing revenue churn or increasing net revenue retention uh, Yes, if you own a SaaS business or a software business, that's probably always a metric metric you should be focused on. But if you have also have the opportunity to grow your revenue by a hundred percent instead by focusing on a new marketing channel that's working really well, it's much better to just double your revenue of your business and increase, you know, increase your the net margins. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So making those marginal improvements is great, but ultimately Build a business that's sellable, revenue growth, and just the absolute size of your business is important. It's much better to have a $10 million, I'm talking hypothetical, $10 yeah. million AOR business with 10% revenue churn than it is to have a $2 million AOR business with zero revenue churn. Because, yes, technically, your business has lower revenue churns. So that's great. That's a check in the box. But the other business is five times bigger. So I think it's important to think about what drives valuation, but at the same time also focus on what builds a a good business. The bigger your business is, the faster it's growing, the more it's gonna be worth. It really is kind of as simple as as simple as that. And if you can do it in a profitable way, that's that's even better. So yes, there are definitely some metrics I could talk offline to any of your listeners and say, Hey, here are some things specific to your business you need to focus on but day-to-day you focus on building a good business that's ultimately something that someone wants to buy no one wants to buy a business that's been purpose built purpose plan to sell like hey i built this i launched this business two years ago my plan was always just to sell it does that work if you are selling a 50k valuation product on a marketplace and it's kind of pre-built you're making 500 dollars a month Will someone come along and buy your project? Yes, absolutely. Does that work if you're selling $5 million or $50 million? Absolutely not. So you very much need to change the mindset and focus on building a, a good business. So that's, I think, my general philosophy there.
0: I think this is really helpful because I, I think, you know, what one of the things that I found annoying in, in business school classes is they kind of, they start, they put a bunch of MBAs and kind of start, they all kind of start thinking about, well, you know, let's plan for the exit. And, and I think you can, there's almost, how would I put it? There's just, first you need to have a suspension of disbelief uh, a little bit and kind of just take that leap and, you know, believe that you can do something, create something out of nothing, redefine uh, your space. Ideally, you know, as, as you know, the businesses that are shaping and creating new categories tend to capture more of the value um, you know, in in, uh, in that overall category, whether they go IPO or exit or whatever is the strategy. Uh, but I think th- those folks that are kind of writing the exit slides before they started the business, that kind of, that would worry me, right? Because it's sort of a, like kind of says, well, when, when, when you have troubles, when you have challenges, you're going to take your eyes of the ball, you're going to sell quickly. And it's not like, to your point, it's not that you don't want to, have the optionality and you don't want to, you know, keep it in the back of your mind that it may be like not the perfect opportunity. But if you start with that at the very beginning, it sounds like you'll you'll make a bunch of suboptimal decisions that will destroy your M&A opportunity or or growth opportunities. Is that what I'm hearing, Thomas?
1: Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fair affection. So it's definitely important to think about. You definitely should not go into business and say, I'm never going to sell it. So I don't care. You also shouldn't go in and say, all I'm thinking about is how do I make a million dollars yeah. as fast as possible? That doesn't work. But so the reason you should definitely not build your business without any plan is then you're essentially just relying on luck. You're relying on a buyer coming along and being like, hey, Alex, I'm going to buy your business. Love what you've built. It's just I've just raised a billion dollars for my company. It just so happens we need to make an acquisition like yours. Uh, we have cash burning a hole in the pocket. We want to buy a business. Does that happen to some people? Yes. Does that make you kind of famous in the world of successful entrepreneurs? Yes, because you can go and talk about how you sold your business for a bunch of money. But will that happen for the majority? Absolutely not. So you shouldn't go out there with no plan at all. Yeah. Um, But also, I think if your entire focus is just building a business you can sell, it's not necessarily make suboptimal decisions. I think you just build a bad product. And you cut yeah. corners. You're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't hire this extra person because that adds expense, and then that will reduce our multiple when we sell. So, why don't we just not hire them, or why yeah. don't we not pay bonuses this year, or let's not go to that conference? All of those kind of things. I think there's a there's a fine balance between not thinking about it at all and thinking a little bit. Um, yeah.
0: And and Thomas, like one of the things that's your on your radar screen is that you probably have one of the largest deal flows in the sort of SMB kind of segment like broadly speaking and that some of those are not that small right like the at the exit value that you work with but it's sort of you started it was a smaller you you you're doing much larger opportunities now so what do you see we've talked about some of the flaws in thinking that could lead you a little bit astray what are what are other things that you see that are like deal killers or you know, kind of opportunity killers for entrepreneurs, right? Like where like like if you just planned a little bit more in advance or kind of just had some advice from a person who was pattern matching of
1: your caliber, you know, they could potentially avoid. Let's say the number one thing we see where someone has built a unsellable business is they had a sellable business, they had a great business, and then for whatever reason, the business has started declining. And they said, Oh, we're never going to sell it. It's fine. It's doing great. And a lot of businesses, particularly early on, not necessarily luck. I'm not really a big believer in luck. I think you make your own luck. But some businesses will just do well early on. Don't need much marketing. Don't need much investment. The product is fine. You find a good marketing channel. No one's really competing with you. And you can grow quite quickly to, say, a couple of million dollars in ARR. I've seen. Many, many, many companies that have done that. And then what happens is to say, well, this is this is great. I'm making a bunch of money. Um, I don't really want to manage a team, so I'm not going to bother hiring anyone. Uh, I assume the business will just keep going. And then what often happens is the business starts declining. And when the business starts declining, it's much harder. At least my personal experience is it's much harder than people think to turn a declining business around, even if you're declining one percent year on year, that can often be really hard to turn around and could be a disproportionate amount of effort, particularly where the business owner has fundamentally underinvested. So they've not invested into marketing, so their site has no organic traffic, um or no social media following, no paid ad campaigns at work or whatever it might be. Um they don't want to manage any people so there's no team. There's no there's no developer. It's entirely reliant on the founder to do the development work. Um, they, they just have one marketing channel because it worked for a while and now it stopped working. Those businesses are really difficult to sell and it's just because it's been left too late. So once it starts declining, that's the hardest type of business to sell. Not necessarily impossible, but you get a significantly worse valuation, significantly less buyer demand for a business that's declining versus growing. And that's the number one thing we see time and time again. We've offered, we still offer free valuations to anyone that comes to us. So if you have a company that's a fit for us, we'll put together a valuation for you today. We then spend years and years often following up, checking in, see how the business is doing. Mm -hmm. The number one reason why businesses end up not selling or the founder never comes around is because the business has started declining and they don't really know how to get it back on track. So I'd say that is not the only reason we see, but probably the primary reason we see for businesses that don't sell or aren't sellable ultimately.
0: So this is really interesting. So what you're describing is really it's like plateau that kind of starts like even over time declining as you know maybe competition enters or things get saturated, and. You know, if I kind of hear you, the plat—the plateau may happen, but it may happen. It depends on wh- which size of the business you're in, right? Like if you're, you know, used up your network or one channel, that could be one of the reasons. Um, maybe you haven't adjusted your ideal customer profile to expand and grow could be another reason uh, for some businesses. But I think what I'm hearing is, you know, if you have... You know, if plan A is working, you should be thinking what's the kind of plan B uh, kind of for the next phase of growth, not wait and just milk that plan A, uh, you know, that that, that's working. Right. Always have like the next level of growth that you expect. And, you know, for your business to avoid that type of situation. Is that is that an accurate kind of thing that people could start start doing? Yeah,
1: exactly right. I think it's easy to get complacent particularly early on, and I'd say most people I see that happen are on their way to their first And million. Um, I'm not saying the, the first million is like definitely the hardest, but in other ways it can be the easiest because you don't necessarily need a team where you can get away with a very small team. You don't necessarily need multiple marketing channels. You don't necessarily need particularly good metrics like churn, whether that's customer churn or revenue churn. You don't necessarily need to optimize pricing. You don't have to be selling enterprise plans. So you can get to a million. And a lot of people say get, not necessarily cocky, but they get a bit complacent. Well, this is great. Is this going to kind of continue growing to 10 million ARR? And I'm not really going to need much, much more. But the reality is almost no businesses get to 10 million ARR with that same profile. Like, So they need to change their strategy, change their team. You you have to invest. And then where a lot of people fall down, and this is what happens, is you get lifestyle creep or like spend creep. So, hey, I'm now making $30,000 a month personally. You find a way to spend $30,000 a month personally. Buy a new car, you go on a nice vacation, you buy a nice house. That goes away. And then they're like, well, for me to grow, I need to hire someone but then I only have 20,000 a month personally so I can't afford my mortgage so actually maybe I'm just not going to invest in in that person um, or if they decide they want to your business then gets diseconomies of scale so people think oh it gets kind of cheaper to run your business relatively as you grow but my experience is actually the opposite because speaking from FE perspective for example when we were five people you don't need HR you, you probably don't need an office and if you have an office you don't need an office manager, Uh, you don't need a Mm full-time accountant. There's a lot of roles that administratively have to exist at eight figures revenue that definitely do not have to exist at seven figures revenue. Um, So there's a lot of new expenses and a lot of founders we see are reluctant to invest what's needed into growing their business. They kind of hit this kind of plateau and they don't get past the plateau because they've got comfortable with their lifestyle and usually the thing, it's not necessarily costs. It's the idea of managing people. If you can learn how to manage... Because it's people. a
0: technical founder. They're kind of a little bit like they want to stay in their comfort
1: zone. They exactly. That. So that's yeah. really common. Mm-hmm. It's not even necessarily technical founders. i say lots of founders don't like the idea of managing people. And I'd say if you speak to... If I go to a peer event of entrepreneurs in the 10 to 100 million revenue range, and we share our biggest challenges, I'd say almost 100% of people or founders of that level or CEOs of that level, they're be people. So hiring, recruitment, retention, training, all of those kind of things. It's not, oh, how do I do marketing or how do I build product or how does pricing work? you probably nailed it at that level. And if you haven't, you're constantly like developing it. It's always, always people. Whereas if you are someone at million dollars, kind of a hundred thousand to a million dollar revenue, what's your biggest problem? It's almost always marketing. Yeah, that's fascinating. You, you know, it's it's interesting
0: to align with that data point. I think there's been um, one, one, uh, one, one uh, class at uh, at the business school. Uh, that was kind of jokingly called a touchy-feely, but it was kind of about, you know, intrapersonal dynamics and focused a lot on the people issues, whether it's hiring or building a team. And it was uh, it was not seen as a class that you would, you would uh, celebrate in your kind of think of the most about in your five-year reunion, but it would be the one that you would think the most in your 10-year reunion, 15-year reunion, 20-year, because in the, as you're growing, whether it's a entrepreneurial business or a larger business, at some scale, the kind of the people issues are like become more and more prominent. And so the more skillful you are at you know selecting and motivating your team, the, the bigger it is. And so that that's but that's a skill, right? Like in a lot of like at some point, like some people that are kind of entrepreneurial by nature are a little bit um contrarian and maybe you know have not exercised that muscle um in in some contexts as well. Uh, and kind of have thrived by their contrarian natures to a degree. And so here you have to kind of, how do you build a community? Uh, how do you build kind of a, a you know, larger scalable organization becomes well, a challenge? Is that something that you see as well?
1: It also just takes a, takes a long time because you have yeah. to build EQ. You have to learn how to deal with people and manage people. And now they will have a different personality to you because you're the one that owns the business i say it's for me personally it's one of the hardest things not never been able to like master it if you said to someone hey i need you to learn how to be the best manager in the world you have six months that's basically impossible because you have to learn eq if i said you need to be the best person in the world at facebook ads you have six months that's almost objectively possible because it's kind of like technical you can learn that as yeah. a skill but management just has so many different things. And there's also, and obviously there are paid ads as well, but there's variables outside your control. Sometimes the best person that works for you, you could be the, the best manager in the world, but they could just quit because a competitor comes along and offers them double the salary. And while people say it's not all about money and money is not the only motivator, particularly if you study business at school, they'll tell you money is not the sole motivator, but often with employees, that's why people leave it's like well I got paid more by a much bigger company I'm going there so sometimes a lot of these things are outside of your control so you can never really perfect it and it just takes a a long time so I always think it's a, a challenge but it's one of those things that I think the early you start for hire people and manage people uh, and figure it out the, the the better if you never do it then, you're never going to build a. So it's a, it's a skill and it's a
0: it, and it's acquiring skill and and you know I you know I want to throw it in and you could probably have more pattern matching that I do but I certainly think one of the things that happens when you become a parent uh, is that for example it forces you to grow up uh, because you know you 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 can you know a lot of entrepreneurs are impatient that's why they want to change things move things but you like being impatient with a kid is pretty. Um, <laughs> is pretty inefficient, you know, a parenting strategy. And so it help forces you to look inside yourself, you know, see what's triggering you, what what's going on because you can't blame the kid. Um, and that's a, like some maturing process, right? Like it takes uh, kids to help parents grow up as adults, right? And become less, you know, address their own childish, you know, hang out from their childhoods. And maybe that's an ongoing life process. It does feel like a little bit of, you know, the the journey of entrepreneurship forces you to address these sort of things uh, inside yourself, right? Like how do you deal with certain fears, certain preconceptions? How do you overcome challenges? Are you finding that the this varies by some factors. so like do you see differences between entrepreneurs who you know who are parents and and, and not? Do you see differences um, maybe between venture backed businesses and how they approach things? Versus the ones that are bootstrapped. Well, you know, have you, like, because again, I think you have the probably the most fascinating prism of working closely with founders of so many businesses at different sizes. You know, have you seen these things that don't make it in the report, right? That are a little bit more kind of All personality right. connectors. It's a
1: good question. I don't know if i have ever thought about correlation between being a parent and being a good manager. My immediate reaction is, I don't think there's much car- correlation. And I don't have kids, so I'm not really one to okay. talk, but I think yeah. a lot of people are just bad parents. So <laughs> just because you are a parent doesn't necessarily translate to being a, a good manager. And I'm sure also that all of these things could be true. You could be a bad parent, a good manager. And I, So I think a lot of CEOs, for example, like stereotypically are bad parents and aren't really around that much. But also there's some CEOs and business owners who are fantastic managers and probably also great parents. So I don't yeah. necessarily think... Yeah, have found that connection. Mm-hmm. My, immediate, my immediate answer would be no. I think between venture-founded and self-funded, I would say somewhat anecdotally, if you have outside funding, I'd say you're more likely to take objective decisions when it comes to your team because you're accountable to your investors and your board. You're going to be a little bit less emotional. So if you've got that person who you know you need to let go in your bootstrap self-funded business maybe you won't do it or you'll procrastinate a little bit because you're not you don't want to make that decision because it's like oh it's your baby it's your business but in the venture funded company you know you have a board meeting with kind of your kind of investors and you have to explain why someone is underperforming if you don't fire them the board are going to fire them for you and they're probably going to fire you as well in a lot of cases so i think people tend to be a little bit more objective and also If you've raised money, generally, that means your growth expectations are higher than in a self-funded business. So often you need to be a little bit more, not necessarily ruthless, but you just need to hire more people. It might be that the equivalent self-funded business owner is planning to hire 20 people next year to hit their goals. And the VC-funded company needs to hire 200 people. It's impossible to hire 200 people if you're planning on managing all of them yourself and you're going to interview all of them yourself, you're going to do all the recruiting. That's physically impossible. You need HR or like people function within your organization. 20 people, that's a lot of different. So I'd say anecdotally at least, VC-funded founders do tend to approach it a little bit more objectively. Um, I don't necessarily have any data to back that up. That would just be my my immediate thought.
0: And so generally, when you're
1: VC-backed,
0: you'd some degree like this accountability that you mentioned, right, whether it's to board, you know, or expectations to return the money to the investors, what what do you think it kind of, you know, does um, when it comes to exits, right? Like, because obviously right now, a lot of companies have, you know, raised at, you know, attractive market valuations, your know, reality may be setting in, uh, like you said, the the life changes, entrepreneurial journey changes. And are you seeing patterns where investors are preventing certain deals from happening? Um, you know, people don't like to talk about that typically. So without naming names, you know, what are you seeing and what would be kind of the warnings for, you know, entrepreneurs who maybe don't have a, you know, VC scale billion dollar exit business? right, but have a good business or passionate about it is, you know, and is that, uh, is getting VCs, you finding helping them, hurting them in this particular environment and any sort of types of VC arrangements you see are particularly damaging to entrepreneurs and frankly, like the scalability of the company, the survival of the company or the kind of finding a home for a company and its customers, because a lot of entrepreneurs want to find a good home uh, for their customers as well.
1: Yeah, I'd say on average, the VC involvement will hinder a company in the current environment. We see a lot of businesses where, so we talk about like how the exit environment has changed over the last couple of years, yeah. and good businesses' quantity like valuations have been quite stable, hasn't really changed a huge amount. VC-funded value, so the, the valuation you raise funding at has completely changed. So but it, it might be, and I don't have a huge amount of experience in this space, but it might be On the same terms, a couple of years ago to exit your business, it would have been worth 40 million. And today it's still worth 40 million, but raising money, you might have raised money at a hundred million, but today you're raising money for that same business at 30 million valuation. So it's a drastic difference in valuations and where VCs then hurt businesses is they've invested at a high valuation or valuation more than the business is worth. The business itself is great. So if it's self-funded, 100 percent control from the owner, they can happily no sell or exit our business. Yeah. It would be great. But in the VC funded, let's say you've raised that a hundred million dollar valuation, your business is only worth fifty million. So objectively you've still built a great business, still a fifty million dollar business. Um you can't sell it because often the terms you have for the VCs means that the founders in those companies are walking away with Nothing. Nothing. So they generally might as well stay around, get paid their salary, find other ways to make money, and that that company just won't exit. So there's a lot of great businesses at the moment that can't exit because of the valuations they raise. That that's not necessarily the fault of the VCs. That's kind of just it's just the
0: model. It's just the model
1: to the VC model. To your 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 point, Um, and it's 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 difficult. We see a lot of companies at the moment coming through the we would love to represent, we would love to sell, but they're just not viable. So something needs to change. I don't know what that is, but it seems like the new generation of companies raising money in the current market, so say 2023, where valuations are, let's say let's the word is more realistic. Valuations are a bit more reasonable, a bit more realistic. I think those companies are actually gonna do a lot better over the next five to 10 years because they're gonna have more exit options because that, that uh company worth fifty million, instead of raising it at hundred, they raised it twenty. So if you exit your company fifty and you raise it twenty, in almost all cases that's gonna be a profitable exit for everyone involved. But the challenge obviously with VCs is often the scale of exit they're looking for is significantly larger. They invest at right. in a twenty million valuation, they, they need two hundred. They yeah. they need at least two hundred to be yeah to be worth it. So your fifty million dollar exit, I would say that's a fantastic outcome. I think a lot of people involved would. But the VC sat there like, "Well, yeah, essentially, essentially, this is not loss. returning my fund, right?" Like this is, and so
0: it, exactly, what does this do for companies? Because I, I think one of the things that we've noticed, because you know, we st- we we started with enterprise customers and we bootstrapped the business, and it was really like, really interesting that some com- companies they said, "Well, no, you need to go and get validation." from these, you know, VCs, right? So we could we could do business with you, right? Um, and eventually we found ways around it and they could have believed in the model or they had the pain big enough to overcome that. But it was a really interesting surprise for me because I, I could sort of see what you're describing, which is once you get on the VC model, you're a lot more dependent on the VC as a customer almost because a customer of capital, and you may do things that are not necessarily optimal for that customer. And uh, you may kind of go hyper growth. You may get away from enterprise customers and serve the whole market, trying to go for a much bigger market, right? You, like you will do all sorts of things to fit into the VC growth model um, that may not be the same motivation, may not be the same pace uh, elsewhere. And again, sometimes it aligns perfectly, right? And sometimes what's great for the VC is great for the customer, great for the business. It does work well if you have a product market fit and that you could scale and grow. But there's all these buzzwords about hyperscaling uh, that a bunch of businesses that didn't have good economics started hyperscaling. You know, spending ten dollars to to get one dollar in revenue. You know, and just kind of like that was rah rah rah, and everybody was celebrating it. Obviously, it's not in fashion now, and And so guide us a little bit of like, what is an entrepreneur, right? Like you're kind of a steward of your mission. You really have, you know, in my view, your primacy should be to the customers who place their trust in you. And then investors are kind of there to support that and grow for that. And ideally it's aligned. How do you you maximize your ability to um, kind of maintain that um, longevity, so to speak, for the customers, even after the business gets an exit, right? Because you're seeing these, right? Like, and probably I I wonder, you know, like what happens to some of these businesses? Do they go on, you know, is there a better home for the customers inside the new company or it's just kind of a acqui-hire or some sort of a tuck in, you know? And I think for me, like uh, it would be non-starter to put, put our customers in a situation where they get worse off from some kind of exit. And I wonder if a lot of entrepreneurs feel like that at the beginning, but end up making suboptimal decisions
1: uh, that lead to that down the road. Yeah, I think firstly you never know. Right. There's the, the the best planned acquisition in the world could be a terrible outcome for customers and the team, or the most chaotic acquisition that should never close and manages to get over the line could be a fantastic outcome for everyone. So I've over the I mean our, our team has closed over fifteen hundred deals. I've given up trying to guess which ones are going to do best in the future post-acquisition. The ones I thought would be, oh, I'm not sure about that one, and now the biggest businesses and the ones where, um, like, I thought they would do really well, maybe they're not They're not doing so well. So firstly, you never know. Secondly, fundamentally, if you're the founder of a business and you're selling, you I think, yes, it's important to do right by your customers and your team, but the responsibility is also to yourself and your own family. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can be I think where founders go wrong is if they're making preconceptions around the decisions the acquirer is going to make, mm. and preempting whether or not they they agree with that. So maybe the acquirer is going to come in and increase prices, and the founder says, "Oh well, I don't agree with increasing prices because my target market is small business owners and they haven't got any money." Um, so I think preempting what the buyer is going to do is not a good idea. Secondly, if you are going to sell your business, you need to accept the fact you are selling your business it's no longer yours anymore can you do things to protect your team definitely so all the time we will negotiate agreements where the acquirer has to keep the existing team for x months post sale maybe they get a bonus on exit maybe they get severance if they're let go quite quickly we can always make sure the team stay around often there'll be covenants around existing customers as, as well so if there's a performance element of the deal so any sort of future payment from the buyer to the seller often the buyer will have certain conditions they have to stick to so if there's like a revenue share agreement between buyer yeah. and seller then the buyer can't just increase prices overnight on all of the customers in case that doesn't work out so a lot of this stuff can be negotiated up front i always think and this would be an entire new conversation negotiation is a is a balance as a founder I think you have to decide what matters to you the most and if you say everything matters to me I care about these 150 things then yes in your textbook world of running a business at business school maybe that works you can have all of these demands but if you're selling a business you need to be real- if you actually want to sell you have to be realistic and be somewhat balanced in the negotiation to get a deal done and that, that might mean there are certain things you care about, and certain things you you don't. If we're being super practical and kind of cutthroat about it, um, got it. Yeah, but I mean, post out—you you never really know ultimately. to me.
0: Got it. Well, Thomas, you mentioned if you're selling a business. So, if somebody's thinking about selling a business at some point down the road, um, how can they find you? You know, you 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 know, I love your content. You know, where can they find your thought leadership or connect
1: with your team? Yeah, well, I mean, if you don't find me at an event, which I know is where. You found me, and we're obviously now both on other sides of the world that we bumped into each other in, Paris a couple of months ago. Um, go to the com website. Like I said, we offer free valuations to anyone thinking about um, potentially selling a business. That doesn't have to be today, sometime in the future. If you want to buy a business, you can do exactly the same. You can sign up for our buy list, see the businesses we're representing, um, follow us on social media. like We're active on most of the channels. Same with conferences and events, we we travel a lot, so you can usually find our team at an event somewhere in the the world. So, but yeah, feel free to reach out. Happy to answer any questions, particularly if you mention the the podcast specifically. I'll I'll know to get back.
0: Amazing, Thomas! Thank you so much. It's been great to have you on, everybody. I, I this is like I learned a ton from this conversation. I Hope you've benefited as well. Whether you're planning to sell your business or not, this is like essential. Business 101 class that we just received from Thomas on the world of M&A and and founder thinking about that. So thank you so much, Thomas. Uh, We wish you a lot of success with your business. Thanks so much. Welcome back. Alex Shivalengu here. Thank you so much for listening to Experience Focus Leaders podcast. You can learn more about us at podcast.related.com r-e-l-y-t-o.com obviously we would love for you to send this to people that you know who would be great speakers or just share the nuggets that you took away from this episode with your community on social and you could learn more about what we're up to and relate to.com you could certainly connect with me on linkedin where it's just very easy to spell my name you have to have a master's in ukrainian it's Shevelenko, S-H-E-V-E-L-E-M-K-O. would love to connect so that we can move together the way the world communicates about its most important ideas. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time.